Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books and Poetry. I'm your host, John Eversall, and I'm delighted to be joined by the poet James Franco. His first full-length book is Directing Herbert White, published by Grey Wolf Press, and he has also published a chapbook of poems titled The Strongest of the Litter from Holly Ridge Press. In addition to these two volumes, his poetry has appeared as part of various art projects, Ones like A California Childhood, Hollywood Dreaming, and most recently, Magic Mountain Home Movies. Every poet has their obsessions, and for Franco, they are childhood and the teenage years, gender, sex, innocence, and the workplace he knows best. And within these poetic frames, we're introduced to various characters and voices landscapes nearly worn out with memory and elegy, and a repertoire of imagery that is often both tender and violent and always striving to be accurate. Franco is our poet of earnest grotesquery, favoring clarity over vagueness as he depicts the bizarre zones of early experience that crash against poems of adulthood that occupy spaces most readers do not have access to, film, celebrity, and yet Franco's poems seem to argue a kinship exists between the world of the adolescent and the world of a movie set, and each of these stories of existence intersect in Franco's poems, complicating the distinctions between sincerity and artifice for a speaker who seems simultaneously anchored in both of these perceptual districts. In addition to Franco's fidelity to the bramble of childhood memory and the glittering industrial complex of show business, his poems are deceptively musical, especially in poems like My Place and the cycle of Betty, Betty, excuse me, sonnets in Magic Mountain often employing internal rhymes, but more impressive is his ability to hear the tiny voltage of music in individual phonemes, creating a sonic landscape one might miss if you don't read the poems aloud. Beyond the sound, the poet's use of punctuation, yes, punctuation, especially his employment of the comma, is brilliant in that it rejects the current trend in contemporary poetry of eliminating punctuation altogether in what is perhaps an exhausted homage to Merwin's lice. But more importantly, Franco uses punctuation to accomplish two things, to control the pacing of a line, and therefore allowing him to toy with silence, and to also who in the reader when his voice takes on a more stately disposition or a more conversational one. When the book directing Herbert White was published, it made a big 
splash in the otherwise small pond of the poetry world. And it reminded me of what Franco does best, complicates society's notion of the artist and the dynamic and at times rigid communities they inhabit. James Franco, welcome to New Books and Poetry. Thank you. Um, you know, before we get into the poetry, <clears throat> I was hoping we could kind of go back and discuss a little about the landscape of your childhood and your teenage years and adolescence. Uh, where were you born and raised, and um, what was it like growing up there? I was born and raised in Palo Alto, California, which is about uh, 45 minutes um, away from San Francisco. Uh, it's where Stanford University is. Um, I went to high school right across the street from Stanford. My parents went to Stanford and I met at Stanford and loved it there so much <laughs> in Palo Alto that they, they went back there and, and started a life there. Um, and, um, you know, when I was growing up, I guess I couldn't really appreciate um, how how nice it was there. Um, I, I was, you know, I was kind of a brooding young man. I got into, you know, a fair amount of trouble, at least for Palo Alto. And, um, um, but then when I got out, I... Um, I went to UCLA and moved to LA and I realized, um, I don't know, what a sort of, I don't know, a special place in Palo Alto is and more than that, that it had had a really big effect on me, um, that, you know, I know, I knew a lot of people that when you talk about high school or they talk about, you know, Growing up, that they don't—it doesn't mean much to them. That they right. want to just forget about it, or you know, that they've moved on in their lives, and they're not very interested in who they were when they were younger. Right. And for me, it's sort of the opposite. That um, it was a—it was a time of um, a lot of change for me, but it was also the time that I found, basically, you know, maybe in you know in kind of inchoate forms, but it's when I found everything that I'm I'm interested in now and, you know, literature and acting and film and um all of that and, and so it's it, in art it's it's when I really kinda started engaging with all of that in a serious way and and so it's um that period has really uh been fruitful for you know my work and just as it's really kind of a um a time of life that that I can use to explore a lot of the you know bigger things that I'm interested in yeah I was thinking about um so you probably were growing up in the 90s and stuff and you teach a lot of uh a lot of kids that might be considered millennials or something. And, um, you know, when I was growing up, my parents like had a very like hands off sort of vibe about it. I was very much like immersed in that landscape of adolescence. So the camaraderie of friendship 
um, and getting into trouble and sort of railing against what was in a way, as I saw it, like a general safety, um, of, cause I had grown up in, you know, kind of just a normal American suburb. And I thought I got a sense in my friendships because I, uh, I too kind of look back at that time of life as kind of mysterious, strange and charged and critical to kind of my entrance into the contemplative life, strangely enough. And, and I sense in your own work that like, um, that there is this certain depictions of, or I don't know, I'll get your sense of it. I felt like growing up, sometimes I resented sort of this kind of homogenous safety I was constantly in. But at the same time, I had a family that let me, you know, vanish for the entire day. Um, and so I was wondering, did you kind of navigate kind of the teenagers feeling sort of a simultaneous, like, um, lack of authority around? And also, you know, that at the same time, you have no freedom like you. Everything is chosen for you. And I always sense that tension kind of in your work. Were your parents like, you know, like today's parents, like, I'll ask my class, how many of you guys consider like you're like really good friends with your parents? And almost everyone raised their hand where I don't know if that was true for me. What about you? Um, what do you think of any of that? Um, I had, uh, you know, I had really good parents. Um, my mom, they, they met in art class at Stanford. Um, and then my dad gave up art and he actually, you know, he actually went to Stanford. He grew up in Chicago and he, he went to Stanford because um, he wanted to be a poet, and Ivor Winters had taught there for years. Yeah, and um, um, and so my dad went to Stanford hoping to study with him. And then the year that he got there, Ivor Winters had left. Um, <laughs> and um, this guy, um, um, Ken Fields, was now running the, the poetry program. Who thinks Ken Kenfield is still there doing the um, Stegner Fellowship thing? Right, right. And um, um, and I guess for whatever reason, my dad gave up poetry, went into art, and then he went into business. And my mom um, stopped painting and became a children's book author. And um, and so you know, they exposed us, me and my brothers, to art and um. My brothers and I were all pretty artistic growing up. My my middle brother Tom is a sculptor and painter now, and, and the youngest one, David, is an actor. And um, so they were pretty supportive of that. Although, um, um, I don't know. My dad was sort of conflicted. You know, he he appreciated art, but he also had this. You know, he then went to business school at Harvard and so he had this kind of respect for business and all that. Yeah. So he was he was always kind of pushing math and, and all those things and, and I like I said, kind of was getting interested in art and literature and so he wasn't so high on that but um 
After he, a while, there's really nothing he could do to stop yeah, me. Yeah, it's um, interesting in that he like sort of embodies kind of these two impulses of like <laughs> business and mathematics and poetry, where one is like seems hyper practical, and the other is kind of the beauty yeah. of poetry is is its impracticality in a way. Um, and so you, yeah, that he embodied both, and that your mom was you know also an artist. That must have been kind of an amazing household. And, uh, and so, but I do want to get back for a second to like this idea that the teenagers or the adolescents is like this kind of creative well that you, you know, you go back and sort of like explore. Um, we can get to that later, but you brought up, uh, UCLA that you went there and then it's, it's true that you dropped out and then sort of reemerged and reconnected with your love of literature. Is that correct? Yeah, um, I'll just, I, 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 let me just, I'll just finish the answer there. You know, I, in my, my work, I feel, you know, in, when you're a teenager, at least when I was, you know, before the internet and, and all of that, we did, you know, my friends and I did have a, you know, kind of a lot of freedom, whether it was because we would lie about where we were going and yeah. do what we were doing or, um, um, just because, you know, it was the suburbs and, uh, at least at that time, you know, you're sort of free to, to roam. Yeah. And so there was a sense of, of, of freedom. And, um, at the same time, because we didn't have the internet, um, I did, in some, in some ways I did feel sort of culturally, culturally starved that, um, I had found some, uh, influences that were very important to me, and I, I started watching the movies of Gus Van Sant at that time, My Empire of Idaho, and yeah. uh, George Cowboy, and um, <clears throat> I was getting into literature, mostly, at that time, mostly novels, of, you know, William Faulkner, and Melville, and, you yeah. know, Hemingway and Steinbeck, like all those guys, you know, that's sort of what was around, and then, um, you know, I'd see some theater in San Francisco and that kind of thing. But, you know, like the, the big movies that I was sort of expected to see at that age, you know, when now, you know, it was just sort of like big 80s sort of blockbusters or early 90s kind yeah, of thing. Totally, and, yeah. and, you know, I just, there was no way to sort of access, at least I didn't at that time know how to access anything other than, that and so, um, like, why don't you think I, you were I, able to? Because that's interesting. I grew um, up in the epicenter of plasticity. I just didn't know about it. You know, it wasn't like it wasn't around. I know. I mean, you know, we kind of, you know, we go to Berkeley every once in a while and yeah. see a band. Like, um, like the first band I ever saw was Soundgarden at the Greek in Berkeley, and yeah. you know. You know, music was maybe kind of an influence. I had a lot of friends that were in bands. Um, but I just, you know, I, I just, I guess I just wasn't even really aware of anything other than sort of the mainstream kind of cultural yeah. event. Um, and, um, and so I think, so I think, you know, when I look back at the time, there was, you know, this kind of, yearning and for something more and um 
maybe at that time not quite finding um, artistic guides or, or influences or parents. Yeah. Um, and that and that was kind of that that was that's a concept that's really important to me. Like, so when I did go to UCLA, um, I was an English major, and then um, I was in LA, and I saw you know, oh the you know everybody in LA is in the film industry, and yeah. um, suddenly it, it seemed like getting into the movies was actually you know at least a possibility that there were you know practical steps one could take to do it, and so. Um, so I left UCLA to go to acting school because I wasn't in the acting program at UCLA. And, um, and then after, you know, eight years or so, um, I hit this period that I've seen a lot of people go through, hit, like, especially actors where, uh, in their, in their mid to late twenties where they, they realize, like, what acting is and especially acting in film and that, you know, you only have a certain amount of control over the work if you're only an actor, you know, if you're not producing stuff or that, you know, you turn in your work and then somebody else, you know, edits it and and all that. And so the lack of agency of your own creative sort of. Exactly. Exactly. And so I was, I was looking. Yeah. I can be frustrated. Yeah unsatisfied and even though I was in you know a lot of big movies and um and so I was looking for answers and and um I realized I could go back to school and so when I so I when I did go back you feel I you know let me come back I um I realized oh like I was still in the English department and that so many of my Heroes, uh, you know, my writing heroes were actually teachers. Right. Um, and that if I went on to graduate school, um, they would be my, te- they could be my teachers. And, um, you know, in effect, it would be like having, you know, Danny Boyle, you know, directing a film to have, you know, um, Tony Hoagland as a as a poetry teacher, or um, you know Michael Cunningham, you know as a as a fiction teacher. Right. And um, hold, hold on one second. Come in. Um, and so, um, and so I just kind of threw myself into school in a crazy way. I I realized if I did go to graduate school that I would not be able to act as much for, you know, a couple of years. And yeah. so I just decided, okay, well, this will be my time. This will be my sort of school time. And, um, was that know, a I'll scary just, decision? I'll just go at it full on. So I, I went to a lot of schools at, at once. I went to, I went to four graduate schools at once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty fucking insane. <laughs> Yeah. Well, let me ask you. Like, but what? I mean, I, I bet also on the other hand, you know, a lot of my fellow students were holding down jobs. Yeah. You know, at the same time, or they were they were teaching while they were, you know, studying, and I I didn't have to do that. You know, so like all the extra schools were sort of like in place of a job. Yeah. Was it was it 
scary to sort of make that decision or was it kind of you had some clarity about it and it was a no-brainer? Because, I mean, imagine once you're immersed in sort of the film industry and then you're like, hey, I'm going to take a hiatus. Is there, was there ever like kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm, is, I guess what I'm asking is, was there any risk in doing that? Like professional risk? Yeah, certainly. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, nobody, when I first started talking about it, you know, nobody, uh, in my film world, you know, was that excited, you know, and, and it, <laughs> logistically, it was pretty tough, you know. Yeah. I, um, I did end up paying a lot of my own money just to yeah. kind of travel from place to place, you know. I, uh, I did 127 hours while I was in graduate school, and so I, you know, fly from Utah in the middle of the night to oh New York God. and go to class and fly right back and that kind of thing. And, um, but it was fine, you know, it was, it was, I was the one who wanted it, you know, and I, I made the decision, and so I, I just did whatever, you know, it took. Yeah. Uh, you know, I also, I was also in a kind of a, you know, my own particular situation where I, you know, I was in movies, I was sort of known and, um, you know, I realized maybe some people wouldn't be so excited about me being in writing programs yeah. or, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, and that, you know, I also knew like when I eventually published that there would be a lot of skepticism and, and all of that. But, I guess I just had to weigh all of that against, you know, my desire to to do this and um, and to do it seriously. I mean, part of going to school was to treat it as you know seriously as possible and yeah. um, didn't you know not have it just be a a hobby. Then, in fact, yeah, make it as as important as my film work or anything that I do. I know that's crazy, and it sounds like you didn't even like really have a model to look at and be like, Oh, other actors have done this. They've immersed themselves in graduate programs after, after having like a stint as an actor. And, uh, it kind of is like crazy that you had the, <laughs> the tenacity to do it and then still like fly around the country. It sounds somewhat like taxing and lonely, but, um, you know, when no, I, it's okay. I mean, you know, I had, I mean, now I have friends all over. You know, I made yeah. I, I made friends at all the different schools. So yeah, it's yeah. Actually, it was actually it was actually pretty nice. It was sort of like sort of like a midlife um, uh, renaissance or revival or something where I I you know I had a whole kind of new life. Yeah, you were, <laughs> and a whole new host of, of collaborators. Yeah, it sounds like artistically a lot of things crystallized out of yeah. your work in the MFA programs. You've talked, uh, you know, I don't, in another interview about, um, you know, your experience in the MFA programs, but I only heard you talk about in a previous, uh, interview about the NYU experience and then the fiction program. It might have been at Columbia and you're really like kind of setting up this juxtaposition between the collaborative spirit of the film program where the writing fiction program was, uh, you know, maybe the, some of your fellow students were like keeping an eye on you and shit. And, but you never, you never spoke about, um, your experience in, 
the poetry MFA. And I was wondering if you could draw any comparisons to your experience between yeah. working in the yep. fiction workshop and working in the poetry workshops. Definitely. I mean, I've been to, I don't know, uh, I think, let me think, one, two, three, four. I've been to five different kinds of MFA programs, or five MFA programs, um, art, poetry, two fiction, and one film. And they're all, they're all more or less based on the workshop model where you do the work, whatever it might be, and then bring it into your peers and, yeah. the, and your instructors for uh, ostensibly um, constructive feedback. And I think that's, I think that's not a bad model, um, especially, it's very valuable to me, especially early on, because um, it forced me to, you know, show my work to people. I, it was, you know, as simple as that. Like, I hadn't really shown much of my writing or anything. Yeah, to, I was going to ask you other, about that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'd been writing, you know, those all those years between when I dropped out and when I went back, but I really kind of kept it to myself. And because of that, I think it suffered. You know, I didn't, huh. when, when somebody else reads your work, you, it, it's just different. You know, you're, it then becomes, you know, about what's being communicated, not just, yeah. you know, putting your inner thoughts on paper. It's like, how are you actually communicating with another? And, and it, and it reads differently. I mean, um, um, Tarantino, when he, you know, he won for the best screenplay for Django, thanked, he said something like, uh, thanks to everyone who listen to my screenplay. You didn't have to give notes or anything like that. All you had to do is listen. And I think, you know, for me, that's the concept is like, yeah, of course, when he reads it all out to somebody else, it just, it sounds different. And, um, and, and I think, you know, I think Steinbeck did the same thing. He just have, you know, his wife listen. He didn't even need sort of feedback. He just need to hear what it was. And <laughs> filmmakers will say the same thing. Like when they do test screenings, like they don't really need, the, the feedback from the audience, but all they need is to sort of sit in that room with that audience and they'll know like what, how, what's playing and what is in it. And, and right. the film will suddenly look different. You know, it, it suddenly the, the moments that you thought were just right suddenly feel like they're dragging on or, you know, or something happens too quickly. You just see all that once you have other eyes on it. And so that was very valuable in the MFA programs. But, the different disciplines, you know, they work differently. You know, when you're writing novel, you use a novel, you're usually kind of working on it alone, and then you, or short stories, and you bring it in, and the same with poetry, and then everybody um, sits around and critiques it. And so it's sort of like, even though it's supposed to be constructive criticism, it's still sort of one versus all. Yeah. And, um... It was like a built-in antagonism, almost. Yeah. And... And then when, uh, I don't even know what the scholarship situation was at Columbia or Brooklyn College, um, but, um, cause I was, you know, I, I wasn't going to be eligible for that anyway. So, um, <laughs> I, um, but my guess is, um, that 
if there were some people on scholarship and some weren't, that, you know, that sort of thing would find its way into the workshop, that, you know, criticism could maybe not be so pure because maybe somebody was unhappy about somebody else getting a scholarship or whatever, or huh, maybe just plain unhappy yeah. that they were, you know, paying $40,000 or more a right. year for something that was not going to, you know, be paid back, you know, anytime soon. Like, um, you know, it's all of that stuff, I sort of feel like maybe made its way into the workshops. Um, um, that's interesting. I think I know what you mean. Like the MFA program is, it, it kind of sets up this, you know, whether you call it an institutionalized cafe or sort of this, sort of this artificial sort of fishbowl to put a bunch of writers in. And, and of course, like I think both of us believe a lot of value can come out of that. It does sort of, um, it might tap into people's, you know, maybe not their better impulses. And then, so when that individual is asked to read your work, uh, critically and simultaneously objective and just kind of respond organically to your work, there might be some wires crossed there at times. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, and then sometimes you just have, you know, you just have the other thing that you have to learn, you know, that you learn in MFA programs is who you want to listen to and who not to and how to not listen to the ones that are not helpful. You know, in a sense, it is sort of like high school where you are put in a room with a bunch of random people that are not of your choosing to <laughs> sort of help you, you know, with your work. And so... It's kind of messed um, up. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, out of that, you you know, Michael Cunningham always said to me, like, what you want is to find, you know, one or two good readers of your work that I you think, can yeah. keep that you can keep for your life, you know, yeah. hopefully. And, um, and I think I did find that. Um, yeah, that's great. I, um, and then, you know, um, well, it's interesting. What it also pushes yeah. you to do is to, um, be able to critique others work. Hopefully, you know, it is, it is a, I think an important skill and it's one that, you know, now that I'm a teacher, yeah. Um, I practice all the time, and I think it does help me a lot to really sort of to, to really engage with someone else's work and see what she's trying to do yeah. and um, and help her along her path, not my path, but her path. Right. I think. Um, I think I you know. I think it's important. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. I just mean you know, and 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 for me. It's, it just strengthens my own sort of um, creative impulses and and um, ability to translate um, what I have in my mind, you know, into the work. Yeah. By kind of working on others and helping them along the same path. I think that's really cool that you bring that up. Two things is back to real quick the audience, the aspect of the audience. I think you're like right to say that, like. Once you sort of like have an audience or a listener, as we were talking about, like a tangible, physicalized listener, it sort of brings to the work. Um, it allows you to maybe take at least a couple steps back from the work and see it differently. 
Um, and it makes it more real. It makes it more, uh, ta- uh, like kind of tactile in a way because the listener kind of, kind of, uh, gives writing, uh, sort of it, it, it kind of like lets go of its abstraction a little. Um, and also that I think you make a great point now that you've been through workshops and now that you are running workshops that, you know, I didn't think about it because we were talking about people's kind of negative feelings in the workshop and how they get hung up on those. But it is a great sort of site of empathy, you know, and I think that is where we get into like community building and having empathy for the writer as a teacher. I thought that was really smart, but real quick. Was there, um, you know, was the vibe any different, um, between poets and fiction writers? I only bring this up because yeah. when I was at Columbia in the poetry, yeah. you know, the fiction writers used to like, it was like high stakes for them. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like they were like, had this idea that like getting agents and had making a living at this while us poets were like, we had no illusions about that. So we kind of carried ourselves differently in the program, I think. Um, I was just wondering if you saw any differences when between just kind of the people you encountered uh, between poetry and fiction and maybe even film, if you want to bring that in. Yeah, totally. Um, well, uh, I'm sorry. What, what did you say? At Columbia, it was. No. What, what, oh, sorry, cool. Yeah. What? Like just that there was this kind of distinction between the fiction writers and yeah, the yeah, poets, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that there seemed to be something a lot more kind of uh something more practical at stake for the fiction writers as far as like, you know, they there was the promise of making a living as a writer coming out of that program, as opposed to the poets didn't have any illusions about, you know. I see. Yeah, yeah. So there's this idea, totally. And I think, I think my experience um in the poetry program was also largely... Um, a function of um, the place that I was at, Warren Wilson, which was incredible. Yeah. But in general, you know, um, be- because there's almost very little chance for you know a poet to make a lot of money off of poetry. Um, it's this idea that there's you know very little. Um, economic capital to compete for. Yeah. And so it becomes, um, you know, poetry, the poetry world, I think, becomes a, a place of, you know, a great competition for cultural capital. I and think that's um, exactly right. And so they can, you know, so poets can turn in very vicious and, and <laughs> they're just fighting for it with <laughs> a little bit of, you know, critical capital that, that, that that's there. Um, because that's all there really is. I think that um, is really a smart observation, especially at times <laughs> on a community that prides itself on, um, shunning, like, say, the negative review or, or having, like, an authoritative inclusiveness. Sometimes, like, it gets vicious, you know? But you're right. Right. Like, that's, that's, well, especially because in the, in the, in the literary world, you know, Authors review other authors. Like in the film world, that you know doesn't really happen. Like yeah, that's filmmakers really true, don't review yes. other filmmakers, and so it's almost like the workshop <laughs> all over again, where you have peers like you know reviewing work, and maybe it's not even pure um, pure reviews. I don't know, right, right. but um, 
but Moore Wilson was great of all the of, of all the MFA programs I went to. It was it was um it was run very very well. Um, I think I think partly because it is a a low residency program, you know, so you go for a couple weeks twice a year um, in North Carolina, and um, and so there's not you know there's not too much time to really kind of get mad at anybody. Yeah, that's you know. really true, right? Yeah. You're only spending like X amount of time with these people in a way. That yeah. Is, that's maybe the other great positive. thing is, yeah, the other great thing is, um, after a while, you know, I kind of got a little tired of the, the workshops just because I, I really liked my instructor's feedback, but I, you know, wasn't loving a ton of the student feedback. And yeah. at Warren Wilson, you, go and you get a, an advisor for the semester right. who you correspond with and he or she's the only person that reads your work for the semester. So yeah. it's great. You just get very focused attention from, you know, some of the best poets uh, writing now a lot today. Yeah, and, it kind um, of, uh, sorry to interrupt, but it kind of mimics that older style of mentorship or you know, like kind of pre-MFAs, you would hear about these kind of tremendous, like, re- literary relationships um, between different writers, and it sounds like that little residency matrix sort of tries to mildly replicate that, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Hemingway and Gertrude Stein or Sherwood Anderson, and um, um, <clears throat> it's definitely more like yeah, kind of model, and um, and they really do push for a um, non. It's not soft. The, the, the criticism is not soft, but it's also not judgmental. Meaning, they really they they strictly enforce a certain kind of reading of others' work where. You're looking for intentions, and then once those are established in the workshop, then the group tries to assess if those intentions are um, being met, Man, and that's kind of if novel, not, actually, how yeah. how they can be how they can be helped along. Right, and so it does really create a, a different kind of environment in the, in the workshop. Right. That's interesting about intention because kind of traditionally that's like completely almost irrelevant in the sense of like the, the poet or writer is supposed to remain silent to the tyranny of kind of this collective reading of their work. And it's like, at times the writer would probably like to pipe up and say, no, well, this is what I'm trying to do, you know, and it's interesting that they uh, do that. So let me, let's like kind of turn our attention to directing Herbert White. Um, a lot of those poems, I think it took you several years to sort of get this manuscript together. Can you kind of give us the life cycle of that book? Sure. Um, so most of that work was done while I was a student at Warren Wilson. And I, I extended, um, my time there, it's, it's, it's a two, it's a two year program, but you can take extra semesters if you want. And I, I just got so much out of it, um, that I, I think I, instead of four semesters, I went six or seven semesters and had, um, 
six or seven advisors who, you know, were just incredible poets, uh, Tony Hoagland and, uh, yeah. Ellen Bryant Boyd, uh, and, um, Rick Barrett, um, James Longenbach, Alan Shapiro, Alan, um, uh, Williamson, um, and, shoot, one more that I can't think you of. You right memorized now. a lot. That's really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a lot of those poems were like kind of your like you were working on those on poems and directing her wife. Yes, and, yeah. Uh, so I worked I worked on them there, and um, that is Warren Wilson is also where I was introduced to the poetry of uh, Frank Bedard. Right, and uh, he's not a teacher there, but. Um, he teaches in um, Cambridge, and um, and then I think Strathmore, um, yeah, in like right. a little residency thing, and um, um, and this in one of the workshops at Warren Wilson, um, this poet named Gabby Calvacoresi brought yeah. in Frank's poem um, Herbert White, yeah. and um, would you let me was, stop you real quick when you I. Yeah. I made the mistake of bringing that into a freshman class one time and they were horrified. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you, and I know I didn't mean to interrupt, but as yeah. you're kind of thinking about the impact of that poem, you know, it's visceral, grotesque. It, it kind of has a backwoods psychotic vibe to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just in the back of your mind, after we talk about directing her, uh, the poem, I end talking about your book more. I do want to get to, um, kind of your feeling of kinship with Cormac McCarthy and Faulkner, because it sort of dovetails into the vibe I sense in directing Herbert White in a way, you know, mm. but uh, tell me about that poem when, when you first encountered it, what was your reaction? Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting you bring up, um, Cormac McCarthy and Faulkner. Um, I think because, they were sort of on my mind at the time too. I mean, I, um, I was doing a lot of programs at once. And so what started happening is a lot of the projects I was working on started to meld. Uh, meaning, um, I had taken a, um, I had actually taken a Cormac McCarthy class with, uh, a great poet at UCLA, um, Calvin Bedian. Yes. Um, and it was a whole class. So that class, yeah, it was a whole class. I guess Cal was trying to That's write a novel or something, amazing, and so he yeah. he wanted to do a class on McCarthy, That's and so great. we read basically <laughs> all of McCarthy's work. Wow! And um, and and so coming out of that class, years before Warren Wilson, I had the I was only starting to direct movies, and I wanted to. For whatever reason, I was very struck by this short sequence in McCarthy's book, Child of God, which yeah. is about this necrophiliac. And, um, it was just a sequence where it was like, as, as grisly as it sounds, um, it was fascinating to me. It was a sequence where the character first discovers, um, a dead body and, the, and comes upon the idea that he is, you know, he's so lonely that, and, and, and so incapable of having a relationship with a living person yeah. that 
um, the dead body is actually perfect because he can control, you know, both sides of the relationship. And, um, and so I wanted to do that as a short film, um, but the McCarthy's agent said, no, we don't want to break it up into a short film. Yeah. And so that, so that was sort of on my mind. And then when I was at Warren Wilson, I was also at NYU and we had to do, at that time that I, that, that Gabby Broad and Herbert White, we were uh, getting ready to do these short films that were supposed to be, um, adaptations of, of some previous source. Yeah. And so when I heard that poem, I it immediately, you know, <laughs> I think, I think, um, Nabokov said, like, you, you know, when, when something feels right, you get like a tingling in the back of your neck or something like that. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I had. And I, and I just knew like, oh, this, this is what I want to do. And, and strangely, it was, it was very similar to the, to the McCarthy kind of sequence that I wanted to do. Right. And it's Herbert White is about a, you know, necrophiliac. And, um, and I don't, you know, it's not like, um, I don't think I'm a sick person. I don't think Frank Bedard is a sick person. Um, I, I, I think for me, the, I, it was really about the idea of, um, in the, in Child of God, the idea of loneliness and wanting love so badly that you'll do, you know, kind of anything. In Herbert White, I think it's more about, um, having a, you know, being, having a compulsion that is so strong, you're unable to stop it. Yeah. And it, and it being such a dark, um, sort of addiction that you are unable to tell anyone about it. You know, if you have a drug addiction, there are places you can go, but if you are murdering people and <laughs> their bodies, like you can't go anywhere. That's no just a secret you have to, you have to carry. And for me, you know, it was sort of, um, a great, a great way to, um, sort of examine or, or, or dramatize the secrets that we all have. You know, we yeah. all feel that we have something or whatever that, um, you know, we don't want to share for whatever reasons and, and to make it such an extreme thing. Yeah. Um, just kind of brings all the tensions to the to the fore, and so I, after that reading, I I just uh, read all of Frank's stuff, and then um, one of my teachers at NYU actually had done a documentary on Frank and introduced me to him, and oh, and cool. um, and it, from the first conversation on the phone with Frank, you know, we just got along. Frank's such a film lover, and he had. It was the year that I had done um, Milk and yeah. um, Pineapple Express. Yeah. And you would think that Frank, you know, a poet maybe would know milk and, and, and talk about milk, but he not only talked about milk, he talked about Pineapple Express and that, you know, some of the nuances of the performance that he yeah. liked and all of that. So, you know, we got along um, from the very beginning and, um, and he's, and, Talking about kind of readers of one's work, yeah. um, he is sort of my main reader when it comes to poetry. It's crazy when you meet somebody who just like their suggestions on your work like ring true every time they give one. Yeah, You're like oh my god. Real quick, it's funny that you talked about like you know those hidden kind of wickedness things in us that we all carry around and how. It, and we don't have to talk about it for long, but it made me think, and I don't know, maybe I heard it somewhere. It's like, 
how the internet in many ways has like robbed us of our own wickedness being sort of private now, you know, that like we can't carry around our own kind of damning sort of impulses that they've all been sort of physicalized in the internet. And then also the fascination with the corpse. I mean, I think McCarthy does this and directing Herbert White. It is like the fundamental symbol where like we are made completely and most aware of kind of the materiality of our body, you know? And um, so it's really just compelling in that regard. So when you think about Herbert White or the child of God, it is like on the surface kind of horrific and, and sort of pathological. But in fact, it might be, the kind of crystallization of longing and loneliness to connect with something and while also being like maybe just for whatever reason being unable to it's really fascinating um yeah so the poem exactly so that was sort of the i mean that experience you know was maybe one of the key moments behind the book. And then obviously I, I, there wasn't always a title for the book, the directing Herbert White, but, um, I, I think after a while of, you know, just, uh, working on it and then working on, you know, the so many drafts with Frank and then really there's, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a titled poem in the book to directing Herbert White that, um, is directly inspired by um, one of not only the experience of working with Frank on the, you know adapting his poem into a film, but um, one of his poems called um, "Writing Ellen West." Right. Yeah. So Ellen West, you know, was one of his his other kind of major early poems. Yeah, that um, is like anthologized like crazy. Yeah, and um, I think I think partly just because. Um, people don't want to anthologize Herbert White. <laughs> Necrophiliac is much, but um, um, but those sort of were the two poems from his early period yeah. that kind of stood out. One from his first book, one from his second book. And um, oh, and by the way, so you went to Columbia, so you had Richard Howard, right? Yeah, I was going to say Richard Howard, um, and he wrote that intro to uh, yeah. Bedard's first book. Yeah, he was the editor. He edited the yeah. first book. And, um, I, and when I brought up, when I was thinking about my ideal reader at Columbia, I used to go to Richard Howard's apartment, and he would fucking blow my mind with his edits. I'd be like, oh, my God, how can you? And he would do it, like, casually yeah. on a clipboard, you know? <laughs> like, it kind of blows me away, these uh, these readers. You know? But sorry, go ahead. What were you saying? Yeah, I took one of Howard's lecture classes. He... um it was pretty incredible. He, he you know, a little crusty as he, you know, expect, yeah. but, um, yeah. but incredible. Yeah. Incredible. It felt to me that you were expected during his lectures, which he had meticulously written out, that you yeah. were meant to sit there and listen and like, exactly. do not raise your fucking hand or he would look at you like you're insane. He also, exactly. he also done me, I missed one class and he like gave me like a lower grade. I was like, what? Anyway, yeah, he was, but he was great. I mean, like I said, he, um, you know, he was a person that advocated for my work, published it, I think when he was poetry editor at Western Humanities Review. So yeah, I have nothing but like really good memories of him, but yeah, it's crazy that Bedard, um, Richard Howard, uh, connection. And sometimes I think Bedard, uh, he edited 
Robert Lowell's collected, didn't he? Something he did, like that. Yeah, the darts, uh, the darts, I think, big influences were um, Lowell and, um, um, uh, fuck, <laughs> Geography 3. Uh, uh, well, it makes me think well, how these, like, these writers no, what's, who what's are... Your name? No, tell me, tell me the... Uh, it's one of the most famous poets ever. She's, her name's something. Marianne. Is it a female, or...? Yeah, she uh, Geography 3 is the big book. Oh, Bishop, um, yeah. Elizabeth Bishop. Yeah, yeah. So Bishop and, Elizabeth Bishop and Lowell were his sort of mentors. Lowell had been his teacher at Harvard. Yeah. Um, and um, I guess Bishop was just a friend. But yeah. um, they were, I think, the major influences I on mean, him. It's amazing the generation of writers these guys sort of inhabited compared to today, I feel like. I mean, they've just been canonized. That's why they feel fantastical. Yeah. But, um, but I was going to ask you about your style in poetry and how it relates to like some, and I want to get to Magic Mountain for sure because I found that completely fascinating. Um, but that your style is like pretty like accessible that you don't use poetry for like avant garde procedures or, you know, you don't get into like really, yeah. um, you know, and that's interesting to me because, it tells me that you're actually interested in communicating with, with a reader, like, you know, understanding the communicative impulses of language rather than kind of materializing language into something you sculpt and, and try to create right. new meanings with. Uh, was that just a, was that like something you chose? Is that something in poetry you're not interested in exploring? Like there's something like right. terribly conceptual about the poems. You know, they're, they're straightforward and you're communicating. Exactly. So, um, that, a lot of that comes from, um, being at Warren Wilson. You know, there was a real, especially having Tony Hoagland as my first teacher. You know, I, I think I, you know, if if I, we look back at like the poetry I applied with compared to, you know, the book directing Herbert White, like you, you wouldn't think it was the same person. Like, I came out of, at UCLA, I had, um. Which I imagine is pretty Cal, experimental. I had Cal Bedient and, yeah. um. Oh, I had this other woman that was very sort of experimental. Oh, gosh, what's her name? She's a little strange. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll get her name in a second. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and, and so it was very sort of, um, um, <clears throat> um, I don't know what you want to say, non, sort of ungrounded, um, um, uh, much more, um, I don't know, I don't know, I even know how to describe it, just sort of experimental, um, and, um, and when I got to Warren Wilson, you know, Tony, you know, looking at Tony's work, Tony's essays, and then on top of that, Tony introduced me to a couple books that were high, also highly influential. So, um, C.K. Williams's book *Tar*, oh my which God, I then, dude, yeah. yeah, which I then turned into um, a feature film called *The Color of Time* with my NYU student. No way. And then um, a book called um, *The The Clerk's Tale* um, by um, Gosh, all these names are coming out of my head. <laughs> um, gosh, she's a friend of mine too. 
Um, Wait, what was the title? The Clutch Tale. Uh, okay. Oh, uh, Spencer uh, Reese. Yeah, Spencer Reese. Yeah. yeah, so I adapted I adapted that title poem into a short film, and yeah, he became, I remember reading about he's that. A, yeah. yeah, he's a friend of mine now, and and so those. Tony's work, Frank's work, C.J. Williams' work, and Spencer Reese's work, I think are, you know, huge models yeah. for me. And, and, and C.J. Williams, you know, and I got to know him a little bit just yeah. from adapting this thing. And, um, and he passed, I guess, in the last year. Yeah, he just passed, yeah. Yeah, but unfortunately I got to, you know, Work with him, and, and he's actually in the movie uh, Color of Time. Oh, that's as great. Itself. Yeah, yeah, he would not his turn his eye away from things for sure. <laughs> exactly, and so he even ta- like when I talked to him about it, just to sort of try to understand the impulses behind his book when before adapting it. Yeah, um, he really he he said that there was a period when he was you know after his first couple books when he was thinking about giving up poetry that it was, you know, I don't know, I just, too taxing <laughs> mentally, yeah. I guess. And so he even considered going into movies. He thought, oh, maybe I'll write screenplays and that'll be easier. And realized that that, you know, wasn't for him. But that but you can see what was attractive right from, before uh... he wrote Tar. Oh, and so, wow. and, and Tar is sort of, you know, Really where it kind of broke out in, you know, the long line, uh, and, um, and the, the poems become almost like little scenes or little, you know, sequences of scenes. Totally. Almost like mini movies or mini moments. Yeah. And, um, and they do, you know, they do break out into um, lyrical moments and, you know, sure. more sort of more abstract moments, but... You're right, they're um, highly cinematic. They're grounded, yeah, they're grounded in scene and drama and, yeah. and character. And um, and that, to me, that was, you know, that was a revelation. And then, you know, in Tony's work, you know, he, he is sort of a whatever... Um, Postmodern confessional poet or whatever, and so he's almost always uh, a character in the in the poems, and um, and you know Frank does that a lot too. What I liked, what I really liked about Frank, and um, what I think I used a lot in in my book, or in you know, you can even see in poems like um, one about Lindsay Lohan, right. or you know, maybe the series about. Warren Beatty, yeah. the idea of sort of wearing a mask, you know, having a character be a mask for the author. So if you look at Frank's poem, Herbert White, you know, at, on the on the surface, you know, there's a murdering kind of crazy man. But if you read underneath, you know, some of the other situations in it, um, there's you know, in that poem, it talks about Herbert's father, you know, right, leaving right. the mother and having starting another family. It talks about, you know, it, it takes place in uh, Bakersfield, California kind of environment, which is yeah. where Frank grew up. And so you then you start to realize that Frank has um, infused this 
crazy character with a lot of his own DNA yeah, yeah. and his own experiences. And, and so I really like that idea of having a surface mask or a surface character, but, um, putting very personal kind of, uh, attributes or components underneath. Yeah. It's interesting being able to like use the, like the persona or mask is like, you know, that somehow it liberates you from the burden of your own autobiographical self, you know, and I can yeah. definitely, yeah, that is really kind of liberating. And I, think, definitely. I think what how Richard Howard said in, in Frank's intro to, to, um, the first book, uh, and, and Herbert White is the first poem in the, in that book, um, is that in, in Golden State, the first book that, yeah. um, I think, I think Richard Howard said in the intro, I heard it somewhere, yeah. that if he, if he, he really pushed him to make it the first poem because if people kind of read that, and understand, okay, clearly this, that is not a confessional poem. Right. That then when they get to some of the other poems later in the book that are, you know, do feel a bit more autobiographical or confessional, that they'll be read in a different way, that they don't need to be read exactly as, you know, confession or autobiography, that instead there's they're read as poetry despite the fact that there might be um, some connections to Frank's biography. No, that's pretty brilliant. Yeah, trying to, that putting that poem forward like that kind of allowed for like almost like an, an aesthetic hangover on the other poems in a way. Yeah, right. that, that is really exactly. interesting. Yeah, that's crazy. So when... And so, um, and so in my book, you know, I, you know, I, like you said, you know, I, I do have my, my subjects, you know, youth and coming of age yeah. and um, performance and identity and also, you know, the film industry and and um, all of that and, and celebrity. And so, um, so I think my I think my book is full of these masks or yeah. uh, maybe um, wolf mirrors, but. Um, Underneath, you know, the, yeah. you know, it's sort of the combination of a, a sort of looking at, you know, the very personal or confessional, but through these, you know, funhouse mirrors yeah. of Hollywood. And I think it's interesting in your in your disposition that that you're drawn to, you know, when we consider childhood or teenager years as sort of like um, this experimental innocence, kind of a laboratory of innocence being kind of uh, yeah. remixed and then drawn to these real dark sources like McCarthy and Faulkner and Herbert White, that there is this weird like kinship between those maybe in the child, since they're not so burdened by the narratives or scripts of, of society that they're somehow sort of more open to these darker energies. And often teenagers feel like that. Um, and then, in the well, I think you know. I mean, I guess for me, you know, I always thought like I always thought I one of the early Faulkner stories that I loved was um, the bear, and it's really a coming of age story and about this boy, you know, kind of growing up, and there's this you know mythical bear out in the woods yeah. that like, the hunters could never catch, and 
and his coming of age is really told through this hunting narrative. Um, and, you know, that is, so the world, you know, whether, you know, Falk was a big hunter as a kid or not, I don't know, but it was sort of the environment that he grew up in. Yeah. And, um, I grew up in the suburbs. And so I, so kind of thinking about what we were talking about earlier of this, um, feeling culturally starved or whatever. Not that I, you know, wished I had, you know, hunted when I was a kid, but that, you know, a lot of these old rituals, um, and, um, uh, are gone. And yeah, but we still had these sort of violent impulses, but they didn't, you know, if we didn't play sports, it's like they didn't really have anywhere to go. So we just sort of became destructive sometimes. That's interesting, man. And so for me, you know, I, I love, you know, those great writers, you know, and they, a lot of them just tend to be Southern writers, but yeah. when I, you know, when I make movies, it, it, it's sometimes, I guess, easier to kind of make work that is not directly uh, inspired by, you know, my own experiences, that, I, that I'm more able to make a leap into other worlds that I, I didn't grow up in. Yeah. But I guess when I, when it's, when I'm generating the, the initial work, I'm not adapting something, I write about, you know, my world. It's, and I have a similar, um, you know, a lot of times I'll have a similar kind of desire to explore, you know, maybe the darker sides of, Humanity, or at least even if they're not the darker, you know, to just this explore love or whatever you could say, like in a, in a case of Child of God, yeah. but through, you know, darker kind of storytelling devices, right. um, I have maybe a similar impulse. It's just that the setting is different than those guys. Yeah, I think that's exactly, yeah, like in mean, some of your poems, it'll kind of create this, like, kind of, um, you know, kind of landscape that's recognizable to most, to like a lot of kids that grew up in there. But what you at times do, and I think these other books do maybe to excess at times, is they insert that like very subtle violent image to sort of like upset the, the kind of equilibrium of these kind of hyper artificial, maybe suburban childhoods we had where we were constantly also sensing those darker impulses and through the, Im- the violent image. And it kind of, you know, I watched uh, the Coen brothers blood simple for the first time for some reason uh, recently. And the, the way they kind of uh, frame uh, kind of gore or violence is always kind of, it's almost lyrical, but it, it always shocks the surface of the scene, but they don't do it excessively. And it reminds me of some of your poems that do the same thing, like, um, you know, describing the teacher's face, I think, in second grade to, I think, poultry or chicken parts. You know, it's like, oh, shit. Yeah. Okay. Like, kind of kind of throwing in that little bit of grotesquery and having yeah. that upset the innocent landscape of childhood, I think, is like something I definitely felt growing up. Um, and I 
I imagine it must be sort of ubiquitous for maybe it's a pre-internet uh, childhood. I don't know. I think that's an interesting thing that you brought up earlier that maybe these things are like so accessible now. Those kind of depictions of uh, whether, you know, uh, I could not watch somebody be beheaded when I was in fifth grade or whatever, you know what I mean? It's like, Jesus. Um, so I think your work does that. Like you kind of like slyly put in these moments of, uh, the grotesque and they're kind of padded with, with youthful innocence. And I think that's a really effective thing. Um, right. Exactly. Yeah. It's really great. And then, um, I wanted to ask you because a lot of, like I noticed like your poems, they seem to like shuttle to different platforms. So like, I, I don't know why I didn't catch it, but like Splash Mountain, for instance, is in Magic Mountain. And, um, and I thought like, that's so strange because, and I think this is where you kind of sense the multidisciplinary artist in you is that these poems are kind of porous between projects. Um, is there anything yeah. behind that? Like, you're like, hey, I could put poems over there in this other project or whatever. And it's interesting that you like have you see a relationship between the poetry and, and in the case of at least you know these other books, kind of the visual arts. And I'm wondering if there's any like sort of kinship you see between kind of poetry and these more like kind of visually artistic projects. Yeah, I mean, um, or are you just like throwing poems in for the hell of it? I don't know. <laughs> um, no, I mean, um, well in these projects, you know? I did. You know, I wrote my my first book of fiction was um, Palo Alto, this, kind of, this, collect, this connected short stories. Yeah. And I went through, you know, I did the whole kind of traditional um, kind of thing, you know, it was a um, sort of regular book and, you know, went out and got reviewed and um, you know, it got a kind of um Conventional form. It's like a book, you know. And and then I and I, you know, but I had, um, um, um. So I'd written Palo Alto, and then, but I was at RISD at the time, and sort of going back to that, kind of what we were talking about before, where a lot of the things I was doing started to blend. Um, and so I was doing a lot of you know visual art and um. really kind of um with similar subjects and so i thought well, why i mean why just do you know I, why not make a more of an art book you know with a lot of material where you know some of these things can live together that are you know these different forms are exploring similar subjects so maybe there's a there's a a, a form that could blend them and, um, so I did this book called A California Childhood that had a couple stories from the Palo Alto collection, but also had some new stories and then had poetry. It had, um, and then it had images, you know, it had photos from my actual childhood, even though the text was more or less fictional, although it was fiction that was based on experiences that I'd had. And then, um, um, and then there were images of art that I had done throughout my life from, you know, childhood to the present. And, um, 
and all of the art and poetry and, and, and fiction was sort of about youth and childhood and yeah. coming of age and and um and it was also a blend of fiction and nonfiction. And so um I kind of really liked the energy that was created out of that collage. Yeah. And um and so when um the the woman who who uh published that book, Magic Mountain, came to me and said she wanted to do sort of an art book um, I thought, great, let's, you know, let's do a, another one. It, it, um, started really with the images, but then I had, you know, a series of poems that I thought would just go well with the images and not necessarily, um, you know, literal comments on, commentary on the images, or vice versa, or, you know, and the images aren't really illustrations of the poems, but, um, thematically and, um, subject-wise, they sort of blend. Yeah, there's sort of the same vibe and family, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and there's, like, a nice simultaneity to it, and I think that's how, like, people are experiencing visual... Uh, text and regular text, you know, is like these kind of hybrid forms. I think it's like kind of reads naturally. And, um, speaking of reading, so we'll wrap things up. Um, I thought, um, if you're up for it and you got the pieces in front of you to read, uh, three poems, um, My Place out of directing Herbert Wyatt and then, um, Splash Mountain and, uh, Beatty, um, sonnet number one. Yeah, you got it. Great. All right, cool. Um, and if there's anything you want to say about any of the poems before you read them, whatever, that's, that's cool. Sure, sure, I will. Uh, okay, here we go. So, 81. So this is, um, the first of a series of sonnets, um, that use Warren Beatty sort of the subject, but um, for me, um, this this kind of idea of a sonnet sequence yeah. um, started in Herbert White. I have a sequence of sonnets about films, yeah, um, and that I, that came about um, from one of my teachers, Rick Barrett. Was pushing me to do, you know, um, write some poems that were um, you know, a little more traditional and kind of traditional forms, and yeah. um, and then I kind of like this idea of trying to encapsulate um, films or aspects of the film world in sonnets, almost like these are like. The sonnet is almost like a short film or something like that, or yeah. like a short kind of bio or something. That's what I, yeah, that's um, what they feel like. Little, like especially the Warren Beatty cycle is like a little. I felt like I was watching a little biopic. Right. So um, that's sort of how these came out. Right. Cool. So this is the first one. Cool. Eighty-one. The biggest thing that is but of all importance when we think of living on this earth. That without it, jungles would desert turn, and races, plentiful and vari-colored, disappear into plain milk or desiccate. But there is a force that cannot be placated, 
It breeds itself like chemical addiction. It is the fountain that feeds prediction. It is love, heed, the passion, sex of a peculiar order, a kind that is best when someone is master, someone is slave, on her knees for Master Beatty, the babe, who graduated to Casanova, the king, the king of Hollywood love, because love is the thing. Yeah, that is that is really great. And then, like, when we turn to, I don't know which one you want to read next, either Splash Mountain or My Place. Um, kind of, it's always weird to me to juxtapose your kind of your poems of sort of insight into Hollywood with the more autobiographical, you know, um, childhood, teenage years poems. Uh, it's just interesting to see yeah. to see the speaker kind of shuttle between those two worlds, you know. Right, exactly. Um, well, yeah, I'll go to my place if you want. This, this is really, um, inspired by, um, C.K. Williams, um, and, um, you know, there are a lot of little portraits in tar, and a lot of it, it seems like, you know, there is a central speaker that is maybe a stand in for C.K., but, um, and other times, you know, he, he's kind of looking out at other, other people and, um, you know, veterans and, and, um, kind of lonely people in, in, in his world. And so, yeah. um, this was kind of inspired by that. <laughs> this is called My Place. My Place. I have a bucket on my wheels and a mop and sprays for windows, toilets, and desks. Children write things in all places. Fuck you, Ronnie, for a good time call. I was supposed to wipe off all the graffiti, especially swastikas and racial slurs. There's a hallway outside the math building full of faded brown lockers caged in with wire fencing. Halfway down this hall is a door, and inside there, my place. There is learning happening all around me all day, but sometimes I stay late when there are no more bells or voices, an orange freeze above the buildings, soon gray, and then purple when the school lights turn on. I can sit in my room all night if I wish. There's an industrial sink and a chair, and I have papers and notes and receipts, and a single bare bulb on a chain so I can see. Each morning, I wash my hands and face, but it does no good. When kids miss the toilet, I'm the one that cleans. When it's clogged, I put my snake in there and clear it. There's a faculty bathroom in the office building called the Tower Building. The one-unit bathroom is for staff only, but students sneak in there and do it. In my place, there's complete privacy. Not many are aware of it. I keep the door closed. I don't even look at the girls anymore. I love movies. I watch them on my little portable. When the kids are gone, I don't even look at the girls anymore. I love movies. I watch them on my little portable. When the kids are gone, the school is a different place. A shadow place. I'm a shadow. Thanks, James. That was awesome. <clears throat> Just like, 
I don't know if you ever did this, like, in elementary school or middle school. Like, on off school days, you would go, like, roam around your school. And, like, the yeah. buildings would be completely, like, it would demystify it as a place of normalcy. Yeah. And your school yeah. was suddenly, like, foreign. I always get this in that poem when you, like, point right. out, like, the industrial sink. And then you're right to bring up C.K. Williams with that, uh, with when the kids miss the toilet, I'm the one that cleans. That was so <laughs> perfect. Jesus. <laughs> That's so awesome. All right, let's let's uh, let's go to Splash Mountain, which as somebody who grew up in Orlando, I really connected to. <laughs> All right, cool. So, um, again, you know, I think, you know, um, for me, yeah, just, you know, we talked about earlier kind of juxtaposing innocence and, you know, these um, flashes of violence or sexuality in the middle of that. Yeah. And um, I think that, for me, that juxtaposition is, is really important. And because, um, I don't know, I guess, you know, the juxtaposition sort of heightens the, the, the effect, I guess. But also, um, you know, in reality, we are... Um, we are um, hit with all these different kinds of um, 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 you know experiences or information or whatever all day long you know and and some of them are you know sometimes it's really violent or yeah. or you know the way that our our personal lives and our public lives um our intertwined is very weird, you know, yeah. that there is all this um, violence or sexuality kind of underneath, you know, so many sort of mundane things. And <laughs> and so yeah. for me, the use of, you know, innocence and um, kind of younger characters heightens that. Yeah that kind of juxtaposition and then Disneyland of, you know, as a kind of a place of innocence is, you know, even more heightened. So, yeah, I think that's, that's great. And I just want to add on real quick to that is like, um, and I was just reading this book sort of about it is like the older we get, the more sort of rigid our self gets, uh, that we're yeah. less porous to like kind of the mysterious things in life. And I think one thing, and we think we're in control, right? Like we control like, suffering we can control our mortality if we just do the right things here and there and i think childhood is not so much obsessed with that rigidness and so it's a lot more like open to these kind of like these different energies that we kind of maybe block off in adulthood except from like i think the artist is continues to be open to that but then like violence is like kind of a fuck you to to your sense of control in the world you know and so to combine like that violence in a in the zone of innocent youth where it's sort of also open to it it's a it's a powerful combination i think you definitely uh have just tapped into it and it's, it's like there's something like spectacular about it and it is the same vibe you get in mccarthy and these you know her these other writers that really like seem to know how to tap into that but um splash mountain you're right like um what a great poem of like kind of kind of propping up this like this fantasy land <laughs> but then you're i'm gonna let you read it but and then we can talk about it real quick and wrap things up um so go ahead um whenever you're ready 
Splash Mountain. New Orleans Square is my favorite part of Disneyland. I spent two New Year's Eves on one of the balconies there, watching the Mickey Mouse fireworks, sad, and searching for something good. Tom Sawyer Island used to be across the way, and now the Swiss Family Robinson tree is gone. When I was young, my dad bought us guns from the pirate shop. When we were older, we fingered girls in the haunted house and went down Splash Mountain. We went through Pirates of the Caribbean, pirates raping pigs and women, raiding and rivalry, men tortured and gold taken, treasure and rape and the boat floats so gently down the way. I want to get out and sit with the old man on the cabin porch. <laughs> That's so fucking awesome. Because <laughs> the Pirates of the Caribbean uh, ride is so trippy, especially when you're young. It is, And kind of the auto, like the automatic like figures they had are so sort of like 20th century technology. <laughs> that um yeah. it, it it screams that uncanniness so as a kid you're like treasure rape crazy pigs what is happening and then you just wait for that fateful like waterfall drop that was really great well um james i'll let you go thank you so much for taking the time um to talk to me on new books and poetry i really really enjoyed it me too thanks john all right bye